0: I've got to share something with you that I feel very excited about, but I need you to activate your faith. God's already been with us. We don't have any reason to doubt him, do we? If we're here because we've been living for God for 40 years, or we're here because we're just starting, or we're a prodigal coming home, or we're young or we're old, it doesn't matter. We need the word of God. We can't survive without it. That's what all last week was about. we got to hear and believe and be changed by the Word of God. Amen? And I don't want to leave this room with the same faith I came in with. I came in with faith, and I want to go out with a lot more. All right, let's look at a scripture. Let's look at 1 Samuel 22 and 1. Now, let me give you a little context before we read this. David has already been anointed king. He's got a call on his life. But from my estimation, it was at least seven years from the time when he was anointed from when he actually took the kingdom. Sometimes God commissions you with something, ignites a calling, a burden, a ministry, a purpose in your heart. And sometimes it takes seven years of lessons, hardships, sojourning, wandering, hiding, and believing God before he tells you, your Saul is dead and it's time to take the kingdom. And for David, it was about seven years, but it wasn't less than that. soon as the Lord anointed him, you know that that corresponded with rejecting Saul. Saul who's full of pride. Saul, who couldn't wait on Samuel, who had to do things in his own timing. So Saul is rejected, and the Lord sends Samuel to appoint David. And David very quickly is invited, coincidentally, to the courts of the king. When he gets there, he befriends the king's son, Jonathan, who seems to be the only noble character in the whole house, and... They become close friends, and Saul becomes angry with David. Saul doesn't like David, he he sees David as a competitor. And so then he becomes angry with his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan defends David. And then at last, David has one success after another. Saul hears the people shouting, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands, and from this day forth, he seeks to kill him. So at different points in, in his visits to uh, father-in-law Saul, the manic gentleman tries to kill David, throws a spear at him, and David dodges. I think that happens twice. So at last, David does something that uh, triggers another outrage from Saul he goes and he eats the showbread and the priests give him lodging and hospitality and Saul hears about it and so he goes and kills all the priests you just imagine getting news that the small company that just gave you food and shelter of priests has just been massacred because they showed kindness to you that's a new level of hatred <clears throat> and uh In chapter 22, it says, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adulam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down to him there. So he hears about the wrath, he hears about the murder, the promises of threat, and he goes down and he hides in a cave. I don't know, Brother Zephyr, do you know what Adjulam means. It sounds like a, a cave called Forever, Endless Cave, or something like that. Hmm. Now here's the the verse I want us to look at, verse two. Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, gathered to him. And he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went down and visited the king of Moab. So that's the part that the Lord was speaking to me from. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. When God is setting about to start a special forces unit for the kingdom of heaven, when God is rounding up people to be part of a revolutionary movement that's going to change the course of history, pay attention to who he finds, those in distress, those in debt, and those discontented. We know that there are scriptures that say godliness with contentment is great gain. But there's also a gain from a godly discontentment. And we know that the Lord is a peace. He is a sun and a shield. And He is a shield and a shade to those who are in the scorching of trial, etc. But there is a power in distress as well. And if you were to look back at the founding of this church, I mean the church in Texas, you would not have found a bunch of slow moving, lazy, complacent, self satisfied, smug people wondering what church might mean for them. You would have found people who were in distress, who were in debt, spiritually, relationally, or otherwise. People who were discontented. I don't want to tell my mom's testimony. I don't want to tell my dad's testimony in total, but... My dad was raised in a home that had no real experience or reality of God whatsoever. They didn't deny God's existence except with their actions. And when he was 20 years old, completely unchurched, his father took his life. He was majoring in fine arts department at University of Texas at the time suddenly he could no longer be content with the fine arts department. He had to have answers. You see, that tragedy had a way of forcing him out of the complacency and out of the little smug niche that the culture creates for you and me and him and everybody else. Now he had to have answers. And so he went into philosophy and English literature he didn't find answers there. He ended up in the military for four years and then back in philosophy, trying to find answers. As the story goes, it was a February night when he decided to go to what a friend said, a place that might have some answers. It was an Eastern religion gathering. Well, he tried Christianity and he hadn't seen anything there, and he tried Philosophy, and he hadn't found anything there. So he went to this, this Eastern religion gathering and um, they all sat down after getting some food and breaking a fast, as I recall. They're sitting Indian style in a circle and the guru starts talking. And my dad turns to his friend John and he says, John, this is just another ego trip. And 15 minutes into the talk, he stands up and walks out. They're out on the street Austin, down by the university. And my dad says to John, he says, John, we've tried everything. I've traveled the world. I've read all the books. I've read all the philosophers. We've looked in religion. We've looked in literature. We've looked in history. Where is the answer? And they're walking down the sidewalk, and John, his friend, says to him, well, there was a man... Who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and raised the dead. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What if he meant what he said? And when those words came out, this seeker was enveloped in an invisible, intangible cloud of presence that he hadn't found in the philosophy, and he hadn't felt in the Eastern religion, and he hadn't read about In literature, he felt the immediate presence of God. They were so overwhelmed by it that they didn't speak. They just walked quietly the rest of the way back to the apartment. Meanwhile, their other friend, Denny, while they were at the guru meeting, Denny had said, God, if you're out there, you've got to help me. And he said, I'm going to leave this building And I'm gonna start walking, and I'm not gonna stop until I find the truth. I'm trying to tell you that discontent can be a blessing in disguise. Denny was walking, walked down to the drag, saw a man playing a trumpet, watched him, saw a girl walking who had been with the man playing the trumpet. He said, I'm gonna follow her. He walked into a church because that's where she went. He sat in the back. Meanwhile, he's back home. My dad comes into the room, and Denny has this huge smile on his face, and he says says to my dad, you wouldn't believe where I've been. My dad was an atheist. The only Bible he had, he had purchased because he wanted to write a philosophy paper against Christianity. He had tried a lot, a lot of effort, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, but a lot of desperation, too. He says, Blair, you'll never believe where I've been tonight. And he says, tell me. He said, you're not going to like it. He said, get out with it, Denny. He said, I went to a church. And my atheist father says, tell me about it. And he says, I can't tell you much. But the power coming from that man's word completely swallowed up my ego. And my dad said, I want to go to the next meeting. And in that meeting, that very first meeting he'd ever been to, all the power went out all over the city of Austin. 1971, February. All the power went out all over the city of Austin. And the pastor went and lit a brush arbor lantern. He couldn't preach with the lights on, so he lit this lantern. And he lifted that lantern that cast a a focused glow wherever you pointed it, lifted that lantern, and he said, the lights are going out in this world in which we live. Is there anybody who wants to give their life to God before the lights go out? My dad was sitting on the front row on the left side of the auditorium, I believe it was, and he raised his hand and he said, I do. Moments later, he was speaking in tongues, completely baptized in the Holy Spirit, And he never turned around for the rest of his life. It was born out of desperation. God is putting together a people, but these people are not the self-satisfied. They're not the complacent. It says, everyone who was in distress. Can you say distress? And everyone who was in debt. Can you say debt? And everyone... Thank you, Jesus, who was discontented. Everybody say, discontented. Yes. Came to David in the cave of Adulam and he became captain over them. There is a power in getting to the place of hopelessness. That's what we heard about last night. Because false hope is a bondage. False hope is not kindness, it's delusion. We have somebody in our church right now, a dear sister in her 20s, and while I've been down here, we got news that her chemotherapy regimen was not successful, and that she has tumors growing again in various parts of her body. And this is troubling news. It puts us on our knees And it makes us ask God questions. You know what else it makes us do? It makes us entertain the extreme. So what I want to say is that if you know that apathy is lethal and that you're going to die if you do nothing, then you're willing to do crazy things, things that nearly kill you. She's entertaining a stem cell transplant therapy right now. And everything I know about it suggests that it takes you right to death's door. Everything I know about it says, don't do this unless it's the last option. Unless everything else is hopeless. And you see, it's very parallel to the sickness of the soul. It's very similar to the redemption that God offers through the cross. The cross is odious. The cross is awful. It's painful and it offers us death. And nobody is going to do that. Nobody is going to say, yes, let me choose the path of the cross unless they are utterly disaffected in all the cures of the flesh. If you still hold out any affection or belief and faith in the cures of this world or your flesh, you will never, ever entertain the radical, healing, cutting, death sort of redemption that the cross extends. And so the devil... Gives you denial and he tells you it's comfort. The worst thing you could do to our dear sister in Waco, the worst thing you could do is go rub her back and say, You're not going to die of this cancer. This cancer's not that bad. And that massaging reassurance is what is happening in most of the churches around America. Because what you're doing to that poor sister is you're saying don't believe in the severity of your condition and therefore don't entertain the, the radical cures that alone hold the slimmest chance of sparing your life. So in the name of kindness, In the name of reassurance, in the name of love, we massage people's way into an eternal inferno and abyss. We don't want people to feel bad in the moment. But Jesus said, Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As if utter inner bankruptcy was the prerequisite to receiving the answer. What does Jeremiah speak? He says, he talks about the false prophets and how does he say it? They heal the brokenness of my people superficially by saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. I want you to know something. We're not here to give you a reassurance of peace. We're here to tell you, Something is wrong, and it's going to be painful to fix it. In fact, it's not going to be a fix. It's going to be a death and a resurrection. It's not going to be a restoration more than a new creation. That's what it's going to be. Amen. And this is what the world is full of, superficial cures. People offering cough drops to those who are coughing with cancer in their lungs. Oh, I got a little cough drop. Come in, let's let's sing a song together. Here's a little cough drop to make you feel better. Well, thank you for the cough drop, but I've still got the condition. Are you going to be part of that crowd of 400 that gathered to David? Not in a palace, but a cave. Brother Thompson, I wonder what would happen if the Lord had his people start meeting only in living rooms. I wonder how many would be discouraged. I wonder how many would say, Amen, here's the next step. I think it might be revealing. I'm not saying that's God, but I wonder what would happen. You know, for those who just want the cold cream on the cancer, they're not going to like that. For those who just want a cough drop, They rely heavily on the appearances, the accoutrements. They need the palace. But for those who are distressed, they're willing to go to a cave and huddle in the corner and hear a message of a change that's coming and say to themselves and to the king, I'm going to be part of this when God does it. Thank you, Jesus. distress comes before change. Denial keeps you from believing in the severity of the condition and so it keeps you from entertaining the miraculous intervention that could turn it all around. The devil is in the business of denial. Let's just take a look for a second at the people who changed their world in the Bible and let's see if we can find a common theme in their hearts, in their lives. How many of you remember what we started off Wednesday night, Nehemiah? What was the passage? It says, and Nehemiah came into the palace of the king, and his face was sorrowful. And the king said, why are you sorrowful? I know you're not sick. This is the sorrow of soul. And what does Nehemiah respond? How can I... But be sad when my city is in ruins. The place of my ancestors is destroyed. Amen. Well, what was about to happen? What was about to happen? Distress. Distress was about to give birth to change. How many feel a little twinge of distress? How many want to get out of the place that you're in? How many want to go a little further than you've ever gone before? If you'll let God distress you, then you might just get a change in your life. I'm not talking about the distress of complaining. I'm not talking about the distress of blame shifting. This whole nation is suffering from unrest right now. Do you doubt it? Look what's happening all around. It's a tinderbox, and the media is just waiting to throw a match On that tinderbox, ignite hatred like wildfires, lies, hatred. It's just right there, ready to explode all around. But you know what? When somebody is under great unrest, when there is distress in the camp, the devil is salivating, but God is also listening. What does it say when Moses had tried in the flesh and failed and gone to Midian for 40 years and he's out there herding the goats and all of a sudden a bush starts to burn and he stops and he listens. What does it say? I have heard the what? The cry, the groanings, the distress of my people. God wants some distress to come upon us. You see, denial wants to soothe that distress right out of you because... That distress is going to give birth to change. Denial wants you to evaluate falsely. Denial wants you to look at a trend in your life and explain it away as a fluke. Denial wants you to look at fruitlessness and just say it's seasonal. But reality, God's truth wants us to evaluate our lives. Amen. Honest evaluation. God, shine your light on me. Show me the truth of my relationships. Show me the truth of my power. Show me the truth of my faith or faithlessness. Show me what it's really about, God. And denial says, oh, you don't want to see that. That's not encouraging. Well, go down the street, and they're selling cough drops for cancer patients down there. But here we shall know the truth, and the truth shall make us free. Hallelujah. Somebody go to, go to Genesis 35 and 3 if you don't mind. And Brother Zach, get Psalms 118 and 5 if you, if you don't mind. Brother Dan, Genesis 35 and 3. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm going to get another one right here myself.
1: Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone.
0: Let us go up to Bethel, which means the house of God, and build an altar there who answered me in my distress. Do you mind reading down a little bit more? Who answered me? When did God answer Jacob? When did God answer Jacob? Amen. When is he going to answer you? When you will disquiet your soul and not explain away the fruit that indicates a problem at the root. Thank you, Jesus. Read it a little further. Thank you.
1: Thank so you. they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. <laughs> and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Amen.
0: Amen. He says, I'm going to make an altar to the God who answered me in my distress. And just above it, he tells us what the distress was. He says when he had to face Esau. When he had to go face the competitor, the rival. Amen. The one who wanted to steal his promise and birthright. And he knew he didn't have inside of him what it would take to face off this nemesis. He said, go over across to the other side. Send his family, his herds, his possessions. You go on over. i got to stay here with God. Don't you think denial wanted to just woo him over and put him to sleep that night? But he knew he couldn't deny that he was going to have to face the devil in the morning. Amen. And so he wrestled with God that night. And later he said, i got to go build an altar for the God who answered me in my distress. When he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's a man praying from distress. If you would pray from that place where it's not an option, where it's not a tryout, where it's not a let's see what happens prayer, but it's a prayer that says, God, something has got to change, and I'm not going to let you go until it does. He he, He said he was going to build the altar. Immediately they put away all their foreign gods. They took off their earrings and their necklaces. They buried them under the tree. Amen. And it says all his enemies round about him were terrified of him. Thank you, Jesus. Sounds like some power was coming on the man. Can you read, Brother Zach? Psalms one eighteen and five. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. Out of my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me and set me free. God has an open line to a broken heart. God has a constant open line of help to the one who has given up on the solutions of the flesh. You see, you listened to Simeon last night and I couldn't help but weep time and again as as he would make a bargain with God and God would do his part and he had not the power To walk out that victory. And you just see him going lower and lower in the spiral. But at the place where he felt that it was over, and you would think he was about to describe a suicide, but here he was standing there. When he reached the end of man, he found himself at the feet of God. When he reached the end of Simeon when he reached the end of his excuses the end of his efforts the end of his lies the end of his strength he found himself at the feet of God and he said I want you to take my life I want it to be over and he begged God night after night in the prison cell take my life I want it to be over and the Lord whispered don't you want to tell your dad he was right and you were wrong And in that little moment, he took a step of faith, a step of truth, of responsibility. And then he wadded it up, threw it in the trash. Why? Because image was trying to recover, wasn't it? But the Lord said, take it out of the trash. Image is not going to recover. Fold it into three ways and put it in an envelope. Image is going to die. And then the Lord asked him, do you think somebody could have done better with your life than you did? Do you think a man, didn't that what you said? Do you think another man could have done better with your life than you did? I'm telling you right now, if he had said no, God, he'd be in hell right now. He'd be in hell right now. But he said, yeah, I don't like to admit it, but I have reached distress. I have reached the catalyst for change, (sighs) and if I don't hide behind it or try to recover this pathetic loser image and all of my own strength, then nothing stands between me and the blessing that belongs to those who are bankrupt in spirit. Brother Dan, you've ministered from this scripture, and I just want to touch on it tonight, but do you mind reading Acts 14.22? In 2019, I wrote a heading in the middle of my notes, and the heading said, Dissatisfaction is the prerequisite for change. And in that, we read from the Scripture in Ezekiel 40, 11, I believe it was, and I read this last Wednesday, where he says, I want you to show a little bit of the plan of my new house to the people of God, and if they are ashamed, then show them the full house. God has a blessing for those who are utterly sick of all the solutions that the flesh and the devil and the world has to offer. Amen. He has a blessing. And and the curse, it's not really God. It's just him letting you keep trying your stubborn way. But there is a a blessing when you say, God, I'm done with that. I can't go there anymore anymore. I can't exhaust those efforts. They're already exhausted, God. And now I want to do it your way. That's that breaking of the will, that eating of the orange that just says, okay, I surrender. Brother Dan, do you mind reading that? Acts 14. And
1: when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. What
0: is the doorway into the kingdom? What are the portals? What, just like this door right here. Imagine your kingdom is on the other side of this door. What is the portal? What is it? Through many tribulations. God, how do I get into the kingdom? Through tribulations. People who want to be mollycoddled and put to sleep will never get into the kingdom of God. Because God's reign in your life is going to come through many tribulations. He's going to put a tribulation in front of you. A challenge that you cannot fulfill apart from Him. And he's going to say, if you'll trust me, my power will be made perfect through your weakness. Let's go on through to the kingdom of God. When my parents and this church decided to go to homeschooling, do you think it just landed in their laps? Do you think everybody just heard about it, pulled their kids out of school, and they started getting good articles published about them from that day on? No, I grew up being told what to do when CPS knocked on the door, and confiscated us from my parents. I grew up knowing families who had had their children confiscated and who themselves had been put in prison. That's how it really was. And everybody said, you can't do that. It's premature. You got to wait. It'll come, but that's not the time for that now. And some people said, let's go to the cave in Adulam and let's press through this tribulation because we have a sense that the kingdom of God is on the other side of it. When I grew up and they said, you know, we need to get back into agriculture. God put man in a garden for a reason and this city culture hides us from the reality of who God is. We need to get back on the land. You think it happened with the snap of a finger? No, it was trial and failure, trial and failure. It wasn't trial and error. It was trial and failure, one after another after another. My dad writes in his journal, he says, we've had broken thumbs. We've had broken legs. We've had broken spirits, but we don't have any broken horses. Trained is what he meant. And and he said he said he remembers the, the main brother training the horses coming to him and saying, Blair, we can't do this anymore. Well, that's right where you get to this place where you say, okay, God, I'm at the end of my efforts. I'm at the end of what I can do in my flesh. And the Lord says, come on through the doorway, through many trials and tribulations, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. And you go, okay, well, let's try one more time. And his grace is sufficient and his power is perfected in our weakness. Is anybody distressed? Does anybody want to get past this barrier that the devil has put in front of you and told you you can never surmount it? If you would get distressed, God would hear your prayer. That's what we just read from Psalms 114. Thank you, Jesus. You see, there's a scripture in the Old Testament. It appears a couple times, but... The primary place is in, I believe it's 2 Chronicles 9. You can check me on that. It might be 1 Chronicles. And it says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth to what? To show himself strong or to strengthen those whose hearts Are wobbling and wavering and double-mindedness that receives nothing from the Lord. Is that what it says? No. To strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him, there is God strength that comes to people who have gotten past opinions and preferences and have broken into convictions. Where suddenly they are fully committed. That's what Esther was. She saw the problems. She saw the threat. She knew the likelihood that she would die. But she fasted for three days as her uncle wailed in distress, begging God to open a way. What a blessing! What a blessing when the world betrays Christians and corners them into a place where they have to trust God for the first time ever in their lives. There she was in the court of Xerxes, Adolf of his day. A creep, a monster, if ever there was one. He wasn't some romantic. He was a fiend, brutal, there she was, comfortable, probably not yet at risk. But her family and her father figure, Uncle Mordecai, and all the people of, her, of Israel were in distress. Amen. And she said, God, you've got to help me. You've got to come through for me. It was bad. It was risky. It was dangerous. It wasn't what anybody would have wanted to picture. But there must have been something inside of her that felt that through that tribulation, there was hope. There was promise. And so she said, if I perish, I perish. What does that mean, if I perish, I perish? That means I've reconciled myself to the final cost. And I'm going to do this. I remember sometimes my dad saying, we're going to do this if it kills me. I remember him saying and meaning it from the bottom of his heart, if it's the last thing I do, I am going to do this. That's what it takes. It takes someone absolutely unwilling to be put to sleep by the lullabies of the world and its denial and its make-belief. Thank you, Jesus. You know, They played music and told fairy tales to the cattle car occupants as they put them into Auschwitz. They played music. They passed out flyers in Budapest showing pictures of an alpine resort. The devil needs people placid. He needs them accommodating. He needs them sleepy. He needs them disinterested and distracted. He needs them in a place of denial. Because if anybody starts to wake up, thank you, Jesus, they're going to do something. They're going to do something. They're going to get off their excuses, get off of their blame shifting, and they're going to do something. You know, I'm excited about the unrest that is coming on America I felt that from the Lord the other day. I I felt God saying, I'm listening to the unrest. There are going to be those who take advantage of it. There are going to be those who hurt others and abuse this unrest. The devil's got a plan. He's always got a plan, and God's got one too. I see the wheels coming off the chariots of the devil's army. Amen. And I see a people making their way on an exodus to a different kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. God says to his angels, look at the church and just ignore all the half-hearted, all the double-minded. I have already said in my word, they will receive nothing from me. Do not even pay attention to them. And he says, find the fully committed. Find the fully committed. Find those who are willing to obey me even when it's impossible, especially when it's impossible. And I want you to fill their souls with power. I want you to anoint their meetings with truth. I want you to put salvation as a rampart around them the helmet of righteousness on their heads, shod their feet with the preparation of the gospel, put a belt on them and a sword of the Spirit in their hand. I think he might also say, watch those who feed at Babylon's trough of pleasures and distractions. Watch those who feed at that trough and watch for those who turn away in disgust and say, is there more, God? He told Gideon to do this, didn't he? He said, watch those, how they drink. Those who put their heads down into the water like it's the goal of their life, send them home those who bring the water to their mouth where they can keep watching, knowing that there's a problem on the horizon. I want you to keep them. What if God were watching you and me? What if he were watching how we partake of the world? What if he were saying, okay, skip him. All right, skip him. Yep, she's the same way. What if he were looking for someone who was hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I believe he is. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a proper distress over the condition of your people, over the state of this culture, over the realities in our own families and our own hearts. God, I pray that you would make our rationalizing self-denial seem as foolishness in our ears today. I pray that you would show up the denial spirit that would massage our backs and tell us everything's okay. Would you please show that for hatred and unkindness and betrayal instead of for love, which it masquerades as, Lord? And, God, I ask you that you would visit your people, every person in this room tonight, with distress. Distress at complacency. Distress at faithlessness. Distress at worldliness. Distress at ungodliness. Thank you, Jesus. Would you give us distress over our powerlessness, Lord? Would you give us distress over our unbelief, over our fruitlessness, Lord? You see, I don't want you to be safe where you are. I want you to have the opportunity to crucify the flesh. But you're not going to do it if you still got a mustard seed of promise left in the efforts of the flesh. But if you don't, well, there's some doorways that are shut that God's going to open for us. There are some seas that are full that he's going to part for us. There are some cities that are broken down that he's going to help us rebuild. Hallelujah. And if I'm preaching to nobody but myself, I'm telling the Lord tonight I will never be satisfied. I am in debt. I am dissatisfied, and I am distressed. Thank you, Jesus. I am never going to stop. If there's not a person in this room who wants to go, I'm going to go across the earth until I find the people that are. Amen. Come and go with me. We're going to build the kingdom of God. We're going to live in the cave of Adumon. We're going to do whatever it takes. Thank you, Jesus. God, hear our prayer. Jesus, hear our cry. Help us, Lord, bring us to repentance, God. Thank you, Jesus.
1: Thank you. This might hurt, it's not safe. But I know that
2: I've got to make a change I don't care if I break at least I'll be feeling something just okay is not enough help me fight through the nothingness of life Cause I don't want to go through the motions I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me I don't